Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Again, same story as always, guys. Amanda's out busy. I promise it's not divorce. It's not craziness. She's just busy as we all are. Our son tried to jump off of a, uh, do some cliff diving this weekend and did it with his glasses on and he had to go have some glasses made kind of an emergency thing because he is as blind as I am without any sort of visual correction and he needs it to go to work. So we're being good parents and letting him, letting him use our gas to, to go take care of him today. And so you just have me and an author again. So I brought in a fellow by the name of Ed Hagem. Ed Hagem is the author of A Road Less Traveled. And there is a subtitle that I did not write down because I am super smart and awesome that way. So I'm just going to let Ed tell you about the book and, and, and how he's involved in this whole story of foster care and adoption. How are you doing today, Ed? I'm doing great. Thanks for having, being on your show. It's, um, it's my privilege to talk to chat people like you who have basically experienced the kinds of things that I have as well. I don't know where you want to start, but I can start at the beginning if you'd like. Uh, well, why don't you give us the, the name of your book first to make sure people can find that if they're interested. On, on the road less traveled, the road less traveled is written by Scott Peck, is one of my, my heroes. So I called it On the Road Less Travel. The fact that he sold 10 million copies didn't change my idea of making the book the road less, On the Road Less Travel. But the second subtitle really tells the story. It's The Unlikely Journey from the orphanage to the boardroom, which is the story of my life, basically. Uh, and that starts, if you want me to start at the beginning, I will, or you want to go in the middle, I can. Uh, well, yeah, that's, that's a story that, that a lot of people don't hear is, is that, that story of the kid who, who started in, in a hard place and found their way out. So what did that look like for you to begin with? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story. My father, my father was one of these people came over on, uh, he came over as, a, as a, an infant in, in 1900 and, you know, was in the First World War and then basically picked up the new technology called radio in the 20s. Made just, I guess, made a great, made, made a fortune for himself. In fact, in the book, you'll see it's a picture of him standing next to his airplane. In 1929, having an airplane was a pretty big deal. But like people in those days, he leveraged himself up. And by 1933, he'd lost everything. And his mother, who was a patriarch of the community, also died right at the same time. And as he said, 1933, he said, I either going to commit suicide or drive to California because in those days the, the streets were paved with gold in California. So lucky for me, he decided to drive to California. On the way to California, he stopped at a, a, a cousin's home where he was unwelcomed. 
cousin had six children and no, nobody needed an extra mouth to feed in 1933. Shockingly, he ended up marrying the, the, the fifth of the six children, who was an 18-year-old young lady. And after two weeks of being there, they proceeded on to California to the streets of gold. They found that the streets weren't paved with gold. Three years later, I was born under my birth certificate said to an unemployed father and a homemaker mother. Dad was an unusual guy, having uh, obviously come from the Middle East, having some of those bad habits, also having lost everything. And I've learned that people that lose things have demons that last forever. And he, had, he resembled Leon Uris's character a little bit like the Hodge. You know, it was either his way or the highway. He had certain he had unusual eating habits. He had basically his orientation toward women is they didn't work. They stayed in the home and so forth. So three years later, in 1939, my mother had it. And he had trouble keeping a job. So they were all over the country anyway. So she asked for a divorce, which was shocking in those days. Got the divorce, got custody of me and took me back to St. Louis. And he got five bucks a, a week of, of alimony and child support and visit, visiting rights on Sunday. So we drove the 1,800 miles one Sunday, met me, picked me up, found me, quote, unquote, unkept, decided instead of taking me to the park or taking me to the movie, he basically kidnapped me, hopped on Highway 66, and drove back to Los Angeles, told my mother never to look for us, and I guess subsequently told me that she had passed away. And by the way, that, that, that mentality, that her passing away, stayed with me for 57 years. That's in the book. It's an interesting sidelight that comes to comes to view later on in my life. Dad was a had transferred from radio into radio operator and had joined the Merchant Marines, and so he was out of town most of the time. In the first couple of years, we were buddies, and uh, you know things were kind of okay. I stayed with the neighbor lady who took good care of me. But then when the war started, he was either drafted or volunteered to become an officer in the Merchant Marines. In the Second World War, he then put me into a series of Catholic foster homes, uh, which basically, uh, in those days, people in the foster home industry were somewhat more interested in the money than taking care of children. The first one was abusive, cold, uncaring. I wasn't Cinderella, but you know, I was close to it. But I must say, over the five-year period, it progressed from, from pretty bad or very bad to very good. The last foster home was a group a family called the Robs, and she was wonderful. They had one son, treated me just like their son. And so it was, I got actually both models, the bad model and the good model, and someone in between. But in five different foster homes, you learn an awful lot. People say, oh, it's horrible. And then I went from foster homes in 1946, after the war was over, and I was at the Robs family, and I was having, really enjoying myself for the first time. And it's all in the book. My father wanted me back, so I flew across country to be with him again in New York. We spent the summer in, in uh, the YMCA on 34th Street, and I learned the subways while he looked for jobs. Then in the September, I had to go to school, so we ended up in hotel room in Coney Island. I had a pretty good year at school. He had a terrible year, couldn't find any land-based work, decided to go back to sea. In the summer of 47, I was supposed to go to stay with a neighbor lady, Mrs. Ben Bernstein, and at the last minute, when he was ready to depart for the ship, she decided to change her mind. So I actually spent part of that summer by myself at 11 years old. Wow. And I'd learned the subway that summer. So you know, I went to the giant baseball games, snuck in through the bleachers and went to libraries and museums and so forth. And came September, Mrs. Bernstein again turned me down. And so he eventually found, got me into an orphanage in, in Far Rockaway. And I spent uh, four years there and started to age out. 
And then he disappeared completely. It was the third time he was basically abandoned me in my life. And I didn't find out why he disappeared until 2015, when some papers showed up at the University of Rochester that Tom, Tom, Governor Tom Dewey donated to the school and showed a suit that he had against his, the ship and the union and a few other things. But anyway, uh, I aged out. Some wonderful social, aid, social worker lady, instead of sending me to a reform school, sent me to an excellent orphanage in Yonkers, New York, which was four blocks from the excellent high school. And then I decided I found my ticket out because 80% of the kids in this high school went to private colleges. And I said, if I can get into a private college, I can hide my background and I can basically change my life. And that's what happened. So you look at that that, that sort of ejera, you might call it, from you know five foster homes, a, a YMCA, a hotel room, you know, a couple of orphanages. And the orphanage was interesting, but when I when I left the hotel room at Coney Island, I had my own, you know, my own bathroom, my own bedroom, and and uh, you know, I changed that. I ended up with 50 kids in one room, and all your stuff was in a drawer underneath your bed. So it was a big, big change. And it was a rites of passage, too. You know, you were, I was not a big guy. I was a little guy. I, in fact, when I was 11 years old, I only was, oh, I was about 70 pounds and, and four feet 10. So, you know, took, took the brunt of the whole problem. But I made it through. But yet looking back, though, all those disadvantages became advantages for me. I mean, you know, people have anxieties today because they don't have difficulties. You know, I learned adaptability. You go from one place to the other. Now, I was in 15 or 20 places in the first 18 years. You learn to adapt. You learn actually to in, basically seek change. You're not afraid of change. I noticed in my business career, I was never afraid to change jobs. I was never afraid to, to volunteer for assignments. You learn, you learn resilience, too. You know, you learn self, self-confidence also. And then finally, I think you, you learn perseverance. You just keep going. And I think it's those are the things you can't get otherwise without experiencing. In fact, I tell people whose, whose children don't go for an orphanage, just make them uncomfortable. Put them into situations where they're on their own. You know, Knowles, National Outdoor Leadership School, or Outward Bound, or get them a job someplace where they're by themselves. So that gave me the, all those disadvantages became advantages. Of course, there were disadvantages that there weren't advantages. I mean, when, when one grows up like this, and you're familiar with that, you get anger. Because as a child, you always say, why me? Why me? Why am I in this situation where I have no parents and no food, no money? You know, why am I in an orphanage? I'm not an orphan. I got a father. And you can, that why me turns into anger. In it. And luckily for me, the anger turned toward trying to get out of it. A lot of people's anger turned externally and it's ugly. And they take it out on other people. I took it out on myself. My wife continues to say, why don't you leave yourself alone? But I, it helps me because I drove me basically to do better. So I print, So these are the kind of lessons I want to pass on to young people, especially those people kind of in this 17, 18, you know, to 25 year old, where these are these are really big decisions made by people. And you carry that with you and you have to understand yourself. And in my book, you'll see there's a whole system of trying to understand yourself. And I can spend some time on that. But I'd rather go back to you again. That's the thumbnail of the first 18 years of the adventures of Ed Hadrian. Uh, you know, it turned out okay. I, I you know, you look, the rest of my life turned out to be pretty good. The first year at freshman in high college was awful. I mean, I got there uh, with a black leather jacket, uh, the wrong, the wrong, wrong haircut. You know, I, the first week was rushing in those days. They rushed fraternities before school opened. I was rejected by all the fraternities. <laughs> it was terrible. But you see, the school relative to the orphanage was still an uptick. So I was actually better off, you know. And so I said, what the hell? And I'll give it, I'll give it a year and see what happens. A lot of kids 
who go my situation, they don't fuck out academically. They fuck out socially. They they just they, they get gets to the point where they get a little bit behind. And they don't they can't associate with the system. Now it's changed now quite a bit. The whole social work that you know right now foster foster care is much better now than it ever was. Kids go to college. There's all kinds of services now. I actually am sponsoring a group called Wiley. They have 72 kids in the area in Boston area. All college, MIT, Tufts, the whole works. They, those kids come to those colleges, all from foster homes. They have a counselor they can talk to. They must talk to once a week. It's perfect because you get in trouble. You talk to somebody, you get out of trouble. And of course, with COVID, this this Wiley group was absolutely necessary. The kids had no place to go. Had a place more place. Let me turn it back to you, Jason. I'm working too hard. <laughs> hey, I always let the other people do the work if they want to do work because uh, I've done plenty of work in my life. I'm a little bit lazy these days. Um, you know, you, you mentioned how you've, you know, like this is one of those crazy stories that that you don't see happening today because, I mean, nobody, you don't know, put your kids in foster care, you know, like a Catholic foster care system anymore typically. Um you know, it's, it's just not the sort of thing that, that, that culture does today, you know, but, but you went through some stuff, man. And I, I do have one, one question because I've, I'm in a dad's group online. I'm, I know a lot of guys, we talk about a lot of things that, that men deal with. One of the biggest struggles that I see across men in general in our culture is the fact that in, you know, in my parents' generation and your parents' generation, there was not a whole lot of ability to, to really, um, Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Now back to the show. Maybe not even ability is the wrong word, but but there wasn't a whole lot of of aim towards raising kids the healthiest possible way, and in that, a lot of kids ended up, a lot of young boys ended up with a lot of father wounds who are really damaged by the way that their fathers raised them. And you know, full disclosure, my dad and I got along great. He made some decisions that that I disagreed with because I was maybe a teenage boy, and we might have had some bad decisions when we were all teenage boys. But but even even that, there was some things there that that I had to work through. You know, but but there's those those damaged pieces of us that come out of how our fathers raised us, especially if you're in a place where where you had something happen that was traumatic, where your dad put you into a foster system, where where he was he was doing the merchant marine thing and, and leaving leaving you behind. How, how did you work through all of that? Well, I'm not sure, but it, the, the thing is, the, the thing he did do, which, which which I basically pass on to people, even though you can't be there. Communicate, and he did communicate, and he didn't. He didn't communicate much personally because he wasn't around. But the letters always said, you know, be clean, be cleanliness next to godliness. Always dress well, work hard, and so forth. Of course, you know, and and but there was no love. I mean, he loved me very much, but there, there was no warmth, there was no hugging, you know, and so forth, and so on. So I, I suffered from that. I didn't know no two ways about that. There was nobody in my in my court, but and he did did some damage there. I had trouble. I had trouble, you know, really trusting people because I didn't trust him. Every time I trusted him, he departed. You know, at age five, he was gone. You know, and then at age age eight, eleven, he left again. And at fifteen, he was gone. So each time, so I have trouble trusting people. I had I built a, 
the, the level of self-confidence of you, which was incorrect. You know, I refused to depend on people. When they left the orphanage, they had a wonderful fellow who ran the place. He was superb, interested in the kids, you know, a good human being, Ruben Koftoff, his name was. But, you know, he really was interested in me. I wasn't interested in him. I wouldn't take any advice from him. I was going to do it myself because I, I basically was over, over. I was going to basically do it myself because I was afraid of sharing anything with anybody. And, you know, I, 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 had, I, had, I had a number of relationships with, with women, but I also was very uncomfortable with any kind of a permanent relationship. It took me until I was 29 years old before I, I graduated Harvard Business School. I had a good job. A whole bunch of other things. I left a lot of a lot of gals that I'd gone. They couldn't understand. You know, we were had great relationship, but I, I would move on because I couldn't trust myself in that kind of relationship. So the damage is being done. But one of the things I it's why I like these counselors. You want somebody you can communicate. My father did communicate. The letters say, Eddie, you know, you're the best. The fact is, I when I was ten, I wrote a letter and said I'm really not the best because he overemphasized that, kept pushing that I was the best, and so that. That was one of the things. Also, there, there, there were other father figures in the world at that time. You went to the movies on Saturday. There were heroes. John Wayne, you know, Jimmy Stewart. They always did the right thing. So they were, there were certain father figures that you could. And if you fantasize this, young people do on a Saturday afternoon, you know, you say, oh, I can't be like that guy, you know. And so there, there was that, too. But there are scars. There's just no two ways about it. And still, still a little bit of scars. I didn't have trouble raising my children, but, you know, I basically wanted them to have everything I didn't have, which was somewhat a mistake. You know, I always tried to, you know, take care of them, no matter what, and that was not the good thing to do. They all turned out okay. They're all, you know, all employed. They all have to have eight grandchildren, so one, one two college, one going to college. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all good, but I think I would have been better off if I had more normal family. And of course, I, I credit my wife. She grew up in one of these standard families. You know, they were, had a business. The, the, her mother was a fabulous business person. Her father was good too. And they were a nice home in San Francisco and in, in Staten Island. They were not wealthy. They were middle class, but they, it was loving. You know, her mother was a loving person. And since I had no mother, she mothered me, which was great. So she helped an awful lot. But my wife really helped. My wife has been the person who kind of every time I get off track, sort of passed me back into the middle again. And, you know, I get angry occasionally you know, or, or a Sunday afternoon sometimes changed a little bit. But early on in our marriage on a Sunday afternoon, because the orphanage, everybody visited on Sunday. I didn't have any visitors. So, you know, I, I'll go down on Sunday afternoon. So she'll pat me back. There it is again. There's that, that demon. And, you know, I, I, I guess you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and, of course, my father was, you know, a good person in the fact that he worked he was, you know, clean cut. He was actually too clean cut. He was a vegetarian. He was, he was, he was always too over overemphasized, you know, cleanliness. He, he was always, you know, everybody else was a bad person. He was a good person. So he was a good person. You know, he, he tried really hard. And uh, so that I didn't have some of the, the bad fathers where they were, you know, they're drunks or whatever else, you know, and so forth. My father was a, a good person. He just got a lot of bad breaks and he had demons. And then my business career, I recognize those demons and friends of mine who have been unsuccessful. When you lose everything, you 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 just it's a very difficult thing to come down and start over again. It's really hard, and a lot of people can't make it. And Dad never made it again. Never got back to where he was when he was 29 years old. So that's not really answering your question as well as I like to. But you know there are impacts. See, I believe I believe in the four what I call four parts of life: self, work, family, work, and community, which is my worth giving back. That first part is self, where we spend a lot of time on. 
what it is, is, is genes. You know, you're given a whole bunch of little things in your head. And then how those genes interlace with your experiences. If you grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, like my kids did, and they stayed one school for the entire time of their life, they have one kind of interplay between that and their genes. Not necessarily all positive. Maybe, you know, you know, if you do all that good stuff, you, you make it have anxieties on the fact you've never had what kind of anything. On the other hand, if you have a really bumpy road like I have, it interplays with those genes. Now, what's important is to know that that happens and try to understand the result of it. In other words, this is why I act like I do. This is why I am angry. This is why I don't trust people. This is why, you know, this is why I've overcome this, because I can overcome it. And then you can use that in your life to help other people. You can take someone who has similar circumstances and say, look, here's why you're doing what you're doing. And I think that's what's been very positive for me. This whole self thing to me is very important. I spent should spend time on and kids in that 17, 18, 16 to 25, they really got to cope with self and understand themselves. From that will take my four Ps, which is what they'll get their passion from that as well. So I, I, I've interlaced these eight, eight words in my life, self, family, work, and community, and then passions, principles, partners, and plans. And that's why I think I made it through. I have tons of yellow pads. I've just invented that, that particular eight words in the last 20 years. But I look back at those yellow pads, all of those words were there. I spent a lot of time without, you couldn't get help in those days. Very different ball game. If you got help when you were in college, people said, look, guys, you know, something's wrong with them. So you did it yourself. You took out the yellow pad and you tried to analyze your, yourself. And eventually I did get help when my father died. I, I, I had to get help because he died suddenly and I needed, I needed to solve the, you know, we didn't bring closure because what happened to my father was that what happened by the time I was, when he abandoned me the second time, and I was put in the, as a ward of the state. I made a transition. He no longer became important to me. I, I that was at fifteen or sixteen years old. I said, "That's nah, not going to work anymore." You know, I mean, you're smarter, you're tough enough to know that. And then, as I got through the through school and so forth, he started to disagree with everything that I did. You know, when I left the Navy, we we had a complete falling out because he said, "You know, he should have stayed. He didn't." I should stay. I can't, you know, I'm going to take the same risk, make the same mistakes. Then I went and became an engineer and I actually had a real good engineering career. But I decided to leave that to go to Harvard Business School, take all the money I had in the world and put it on the H, you know, Harvard. And I actually, the money I had was $5,000, which was just enough to pay the first year's tuition. He disagreed with that. And then finally, the biggest disagreement of all, when I decided to marry my wife, Barbara, because she kind of looked at like my mother, I'd never seen a picture of her. He basically disagreed with that violently, you know, and so, so then we basically were had a, what I call peaceful coexistence. It wasn't wasn't awful. It was no anger, but I would never, you know, I never really placed any emphasis on him anymore. And that was that's important for kids too. If you have a father who's, you know, some of these other poor kids have much worse fathers. I I I involved in Horatio Alger. A lot of those kids had much better, worse backgrounds than I have. And you've got to someplace along the line. First of all, disassociate yourself, and then build a system. It allows you to associate with them, and, but yet not depend on them. Because you depend on them, you're, you're out of business. And if I depended on my father, he took his advice, I would have never done what I've done. So, And it's not his fault. I mean, I, I understand. And that's why my second ghostwriter, who was fabulous, what a wonderful lady. But she wanted me to hate my father. And I said, I didn't hate my father. I love my father. And I think I understood him. 
Yeah. Long answer, short question. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of times your mom in that story. Did you ever have an opportunity to meet your mom? Did you find out the real story? You know, how, how did that turn out? Well, when my father died in, seven, in, 19, in 1971, I was 36 years old. And went to, he died. In his, he, his car was his horse. He used to he'd drive across country and so forth. He had four or five accidents. He had four or five tickets. He was going to lose his license. And he died of a heart attack. But I have a feeling he died because they were going to take, a, take his license away. Anyway, he died in his car on the road, stopped the car, had a heart attack, died. I went down to Florida, worked out, thank God for Barbara's mother, because I couldn't handle it. She organized everything. And we got everything all done, took took this gun to the police station and so forth. He ended up with a suitcase full of letters. And I sat down one afternoon, started to go through them, and they just couldn't handle it. So I put them all back in there, took the suitcase back to Greenwich, Connecticut, threw it in the closet. 24 years later, on a rainy Sunday afternoon, Barbara, the thrower aware, came in and said, I'm throwing it away if you don't look in it. And it was raining, so I decided to look in it. And I went through it and quickly went through stuff I didn't want to look at. Then I saw this sheaf of yellow sort of letters, and I looked at I don't recognize that. You know, all of a sudden, it was letters between my mother and my father. Turns out she didn't die. They got divorced. Holy mackerel. And so I sat down with Barbara, and we said, you know, my father said she was a bad lady. She didn't like kids. You know, it's a good thing that she died, the whole thing. So why did we need? I mean, I had a great job. Kids were all in private school. Wonderful wife. Barbara's mother became my mother. Barbara's aunt became my aunt. I have everything fine. Now, why do I want to bring this other character in? After about six weeks, that took more than a month. We decided we'd do it. And so I wrote her letters. I think of your son. And uh, give me a call if you, if you want to reconnect. And she did. And we flew out to St. Louis. And I pushed the bell on her apartment and said, I'm your, <clears throat> your son is here 57 years late. So I showed up at her apartment. And, and uh, there she was. And I could tell immediately that she was my mother, first of all. She's the only person in St. Louis who talks fast. <laughs> She's also slightly bent over like I am. I kind of lean. My wife drives my wife crazy. And then finally, uh, she she rhymes. When people invite me to parties because I rhyme. And she rhymes better than I do. And she also memorizes it. So I, it was very funny. Anyway, not emotional. Wasn't emotional until about two or three hours into the conversation. See, when we separated, when I was three years old, my mother was thinking and not feeling. She felt because she was not really, you know, accepted or welcome in her own home that I might be better off with my father, that she at 24 years old had made a mistake in, in, in divorcing and so forth. So she let, let, let me go with my father. My father, on the other hand, who was emotional, he was feeling but not thinking. Here's a three-year-old mouth to feed. And keep Like you said, your little one. I mean, he used to put me to bed, sneak down to the lobby, and smoke a cigar, and I would get in the elevator and go down in my pajamas and sit on the stairs and look at him. Someone says, is that your kid up there? You know, and he's, he told me that story. I used to always do that. I don't know how the hell I left the hotel room and walked down the stairs, but it was one of the big old hotel rooms on the second floor. And so, uh, so you know, she so she was very practical, and she wasn't. And what was fascinating to me was after a period of time, I realized I wasn't my father. I was only partly my father. I had this whole other experience and she was very different and i recognized a lot of things that i do that, that she brought to the party also her health i mean she she died at 93 without ever being sick and decided she had had it she said it's just stopped eating you know she was a, a, a you know and a character absolute character drank martinis and and wore high heel shoes at her 90th birthday so so we had a wonderful 12 years together 
And she and Barbara's mother and her aunt, they're all in their 90s, became the Three Musketeers. And we, we took up every place. And it was, it was fun. It was good for me. She she always said to me, you know, uh, you know, I'm not really your mother. I didn't, I'm not sure I nursed you. You know, I wasn't there at anyone. And but if I didn't call on Sunday, every Sunday, she would say, long time between drinks of water. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she was good. And we we had, we had a wonderful relationship. And it was very good because her husband, her second husband, had died about two years before I discovered her. And she had another son, Phil, who's a doctor in, in, in Lexington, Kentucky. And she calls him up and said, Phil. Remember that brother you always wanted? <laughs> so Phil and I have become very close friends. He's got uh, three boys, and uh, I have three children. Our children have become close. His children, and so it's you know it, it's very nice. He's a very nice man. His wife and my wife have become friends, and so on. So you know, I've been if I had, had my mother for twelve years, and now I have a, a lifelong friend and, and a half brother, and and so it's it's uh, it's it's very nice. So I lucked out again. I've been a very lucky guy. Things happen at the right time. If I would have sought her out at age 36, I'm not sure she'd have been married. To him. You know, she'd had a child. She was in St. Louis. It might have been more difficult and more, more complicated for her as well. So, so it worked out just fine. But it wasn't great. I mean, the same day that I discovered her, the front page of the St. Louis Courage Journal, whatever it's called, had a picture of a woman reuniting with her daughter after 25 years. And here I was reunited with my mother after 57 years. But I had chosen a private life, and I was not going to tell anybody, so I didn't. And so, uh, but but we got along very well, and, and she we took her every place with us, and so and she was a, a real trooper, so it worked out really well. And I can understand her 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 point of view, and I can also understand my father's point of view too as well. I mean, I I really believe that twenty nine to thirty three year three period was just awful for people. They they developed a lifestyle in the late twenties. All went away. Everything, you know, gone. You know, my and that later, my my grandfather stayed behind, and he 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 had, actually my father had got the business for him. And he had a business in Coney Island, a shooting gallery or something, and he bankrupted that, and he got run over by a truck. And I remember they arguing over his bank account, which had about eighty dollars in it or something between he and somebody else. So it was, it's you know, life is so different. People don't realize how much better life is today than it was in the. 30s and 40s and 50s. They, they were much more of a different experience. No matter what you touch, whether it's medical or education or family life or whatever else it is. You know, you wouldn't believe that if you, if you look on social media and the way that people are today, you know, and, uh, you know, just look at politics and what's going on in the world and the way that people are reacting to each other, you know, um, everybody's looking for a reason to be a victim and, and how their life is, is so horrible because of mostly it's a politician's fault. In in my experience, that's, that's what everybody seems wants to say. That's one of my messages by one of my main messages, never be a victim. If you can help it, never be a victim because being a victim requires enormous energy. And your, your biggest problem being a victim is you've got to do something next. What's next? Use that energy to, to solve that what's next problem. It's much better. And, I, and I have real examples of that. I mean, real examples. I mean, first of all, my life is an example that I've really tried never to be a victim. You know, freshman year, I got rejected by all fraternities. What's next is proof to those fraternities they're wrong. So I played basketball, freshman basketball, freshman football. I was on the integration committee. I was, I was actually the sophomore honorary society. All of a sudden, all the fraternities, they all wanted me. And I, I went to the one that was the most prestigious, prestigious one, I think, of, of all the fraternities. And I became the social chairman of that fraternity and so on. But I, I, did, I wasn't a victim. As I'm going on, Lehman Brothers, I spent seven years 
And if you read the book, I did, I really did a great job on two big divisions. But the boss and I, I didn't like the way he operated. I didn't like him. He didn't like me. And after seven, I mean, I raised one in the second division, I raised seven and a half billion dollars, which doesn't seem like much today. We were one of the biggest money raisers in any short period of time. And and I made the thing profitable and everything else. He still booted me out. I could have fought him because I was the chairman of a whole bunch of mutual funds and outside boards. Put it aside. What's next? And I found my dream job. But never be a victim if you can help it. I mean, obviously, you got to grieve a little occasionally. You know, like Lehman Brothers was not my fault. No. But even when I when I failed, I failed at age 33 with a company. I could have fought that to the end, put it aside, onward to the next thing. And and people become victims, right? And in today's world, I mean, and one of the problems with social media is that everybody looks perfect. And they're not, life's not perfect. It really isn't. It's, it's a bunch of moles and warts, you know, they're going to keep going. I always say the journey of life, the road of life is always under construction. How's that one for a little quote for you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I need to find that perfect photo filter on uh, on Facebook because this face right here, it, it just doesn't change. I don't care how many pictures I take of it or what you do with lighting and filters. It doesn't work. It's it's always it's always I got I got my my bumps and bruises and and they're out there for the world to see. And, and I I'm OK with that. And, you know, it sounds like Lehman Brothers may have done well to have kept a few more guys like you because um, I'm no financial guy. But I know that, I don't know what it's been, about 14 years ago when everything went sideways. I saw their oh, they, news they, 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 but That's the second time. The first time was I left in October of 83, and the company had a record year. They earned $120 million. In seven months, they were gone. They sold out to Shearson. Then they spent a whole bunch of years there. Then they came out again and did it again in 2009. Yeah, it's no, a, it could. Though the, the, the people that were were part of Lehman Brothers when I were there were just unbelievably good people. I mean, Steve Schwarzman, who founded Black Black Blackstone, you have to talk about anybody else. I mean, he's made you know a huge company. Pete Peterson, who Peterson Institute and so forth. I mean, I, I my favorite story was that one of my one of the partners called me and says, "This is <clears throat> this is uh, uh, Luigi." He says, "I said, where are you? Where are you? Where are you?" He says, "He says." I need to find out about the. I need to find out about the economy. What are you talking about the economy these days? I said, well, it, I you know it looks like it's a little bit shaky. I said, where are you? Where are you? He says, I'm on the Pope's plane. <laughs> <laughs> these guys, the Lehman Brothers, had the greatest contacts in the world. I mean, Peter Peterson would have would have the, the head of the uh, Federal Reserve on one one line. He put him on hold. You know, they they just did wonderful things, but they they would just eat each other up. And and the, and then the guy who took over pushed me out. Ended up ruining the company. And, it, it went went down pretty hard, sold out for a very small price. And then you know, 20 years later, came back out again and then grew again very rapidly and then fell apart again. So it was kind of sad. That was sad. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we started this journey talking about a kid who was kidnapped and, and thrown into foster homes. And then now we're talking about, you know, talking to folks who were on the phone in, inside the Pope's plane and, and made it, yeah. to, you know, into the boardroom to quote part of the boardroom. It was shocking that I was, this kid in the orphanage was, you know, standing next to people, you know, I got a picture of H.W. Bush and myself on the, on the, on the wall here. And I've been very lucky. I've, I've trans, I've really transitioned to the, you know, to a position where I have very important people that I know very well personally, you know, Jack, Jack Welsh, a member of my club. I said, hi, Jack. You know, I'm, I'm not bragging. It just happened to be that, that I've been able to process. So the message in my book is anything is possible. 
You're only limited by the imagination of how hard you want to work. And, you know, and luck. you got to have a little bit of luck. I always have a, have a sign in my office, skill is important, but luck is essential. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also being born at the right time. I, I was born at the right time. I mean, the cohort of male births in 1936 was very small. Think about that. And I was followed by the baby boomer. So anything that I bought went up in price because these big bulls was right behind me. I was also born in America. I mean, you know, we're, 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 we're struggling now with who we are, but we're still the greatest country in the history of the world. And we're only the country in the history of the world that, that's willing and tries to really integrate a real complex group of people. You know, look at other, most other countries are relatively homogeneous. And we have tried to do this. And I think we're hoping we pull it off. You know, I'm, I'm hoping we pull it off because it allows us to do things that no other country can do. It's not, it's messy. I mean, Churchill said it all. You know, democracy is not worth a damn unless you compare it with everything else. <laughs> yeah, I love that quote because, yeah. It's a great, it's a great quote. I have a, uh, I have a 15 year old daughter and we talk some of this, you know, some of the stuff about politics and with all the Roe versus Wade stuff going on the news lately, we've, we've had some conversations and, you know, as we talk through, through politics in the world and, and, you know, she, she was adopted out of the foster system and we talk about all these different parts and it, it, all these questions that come up and, and the younger generation does look at the, a lot of things going on and they, they don't look at it very favorably. A lot of times that's not right. And I'm like, I, I get it. Like some of the stuff is, is bad that we still have to deal with. But the truth is, as bad as it is, it's still the best thing we have. That's right. I mean, you, you, if you read history of Russia or China or any other so-called, you know, civilized countries, there's no comparison. You know, the kind, people disappear. I mean, you know, how many generals did Stalin kill? I mean, that, that kind of thing. What's going on in, in China right now? Don't, don't, don't say the wrong things. Or, you know, it might go away, you know, disappear. We we still have this idea, you know, we still have a process. It's not but it's not it's messy. And we are transitioning a little bit to it was our game, you know, you know, just like it was Britain in the nineteenth century, the twentieth century was our century, you know, and when you transition, it's also somewhat difficult. You give up power and so on and so forth. And we we have to learn how to do that. I think we're the only country in the world can keep doing that and get away with it. I hope. I mean, I just hope. I mean, I I, I hope for our next generation that they really can do things. And the young people do look at things different because they are different from them. And again, this idea of self, that it's your genes versus what you went through, they went through it very differently. How can I have my children, you know, react the same way I do to certain things? Because they, they, there's a different inter interaction during their lifetime. And I must say, a lot of people, a lot of young people today tend to be more oriented toward doing good. And that's, you know, I was interested in making a living for a long period of time. I didn't pivot until I was 47 years old. You know, I learned the golden rule from the nuns, you know, do unto others. And it really, it took me through most of my life that what I call the principles, the, the second P. But the other principle that I had was uh, the second golden rule, which is he who has the gold rules. And I was going to make money and, you know, and make sure I got myself financially stable, financially secure before I turned. At 47, I pivoted away from Lehman Brothers toward a small company where I really found my passion, which was helping people do better than they think they can. You can do that in a small company. It's hard to do it in a large company. And I pivoted away from real, you know, Lehman Brothers, the, the dining room was the best dining room on Wall Street. My dining room at Furman Cells was two hot plates in the, in the conference room. My office at Lehman Brothers overlooked the whole harbor, Statue of Liberty, the whole works. My office at Lehman Furman Cells looked at the little wall. 
but I loved it because it was my it was my thing. And I had a good time doing it. I took 20 years running a company, and that's really what I wanted to do. But I, I couldn't have done that without spending the time becoming reasonably financially secure. I mean, I you know, being poor is a it's a tough, tough game. You, know, you can't afford things. And I was not, you know, I left Lehman. I wasn't, you know, I had to work. So there's no ways about that. But I had enough, you know, enough to say, well, things were okay by then. Yeah. I grew up in that world. My, my dad was a police officer. And uh, for a while, my mom worked in another police department as the evidence custodian. And as we all know, government jobs aren't always great paid. And, and the police department is not at the top of that either. And my dad, my dad taught me some principles that I, that I still embody. Part of that is that if you ask me a question, I hope you want the answer because I'm going to give you the real answer. He was the same way. And uh, he always said he would retire as a patrolman. And he did because when, when, the brass would ask him a question. He'd give him the real answer that he had. And he, he didn't play, you know, the, polit- the company politics or, or office politics very well at all, which I, I really appreciate that in, in what I learned from him, because quite frankly, I don't care that much about climbing the corporate ladder in, in my world. I, I do just fine where I'm at. But, you know, it's it's not always the way that that leaves you with a lot of money, when, you know, to take care of kids. And so, yeah, we were we were probably the lower end of the of of middle class. But what your dad did is, you, I think you'll enjoy, if you read my book, you'll find that Lehman Brothers exactly, I told him what I thought and he didn't like it. I mean, in the book, there's an example, he calls me up and he says, you know, I just lost some money. I fired four people. I want you to fire four of your people. And so I showed up at his office and he says, where are the four people? I says, you're looking at them. I said, it's been hard enough to hire people coming to this place. I'm sure it's not going to fire anybody. And he really lost it. He lost it. But I said, fire me, go ahead. I'm a part. I was partner. He couldn't do it. He could do it, but he, he just he didn't do it, which was lucky. But I would I would tell him. I go, hey Lou, you, he fired one guy one morning. He fired one of one was one of his partners. Guy who had eleven children. I said, what? Boo, this guy's a good guy. What are you doing? Hey, did this, did this. And I used to I took him on. I was one of a few guys, and he pushed me out. He he in the book you'll find out. I grew the company too fast. Therefore, he had to move me out of that situation. And Peterson stepped aside. It was kind of he was not there to support me, but but again, good luck. On to the next thing, and I found my real real dream. And then, of course, this was a small company, didn't pay very well, but it was all right. But I grew it and sold it until I made the ultimate dollar bill. And even then, I quit. I quit making money at age seventy two. Became the the chairman of the board of trustees at the University of Rochester, which is that fourth part. You know, it's self, family, work, and then giving back. I got a chance to really give back. I spent. 20 or oh, 30 years as a trustee and and you know education is the solution to everything if you, and if you've got to make a contribution to something try to make a contribution to that minus scholarships i give as many scholarships as i can afford and that includes wherever i, I mean my golf club just gave 10 vocational scholarships to the high school we're, we're now into our 22nd year of giving scholarships to kids at the local high school and so, you know it's, it's, so these are the kinds of things that you can do but you have to pivot you know you can't um, if you're going to make money, you got to make money. And if you're going to do something else, you got to, you can't do two couple things at the same time. I learned early in my life. It was in the book too, is I had a small company and I tried to do too many things at the same time and I failed. But that's why I tell people early failure is a gift because you really learn. You learn from, you learn when you, when you really go down bad, you learn some lessons. <laughs> but I, I love your father's, you know, you tell them how it is. And the politics always drove me crazy. Small company, you're the chairman, you make the politics. And I made, what I call no politics. 
There's no politics in this company. And we did well. We, we were a very big success story. You know, it, it you know, was a group from 70 people to 800, and from 20 million to nearly half a billion. We sold it once, bought it back, sold it again. It was a, it was a, and I really love my people. But I, I had found my passion in college, and I didn't know it. My passion was putting people together to solve problems or create products or, or find a solution. And then helping those people do better than they think they can. If you, people really believe that you want them to do better than they think they can, they love you. And if you do that, and I, that just came natural to me, I really get a kick out seeing someone you know, do well in sports or business or whatever else. Gives me a, and they can feel that. And I was just lucky. I don't know what. I'm trying to still understand why I came to that, because I came to that in the humor magazine. When I set the humor magazine up, I, I got people that do things I couldn't do, but I, I had them do better. The cartoonist did a better job than he normally would do, even though I couldn't do a cartoons. He had to do it by himself. I'm going off. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, I totally understand what you're saying. You know, when I was in the Army, um, Sergeant Boyle, you know, uh, that was the guy I had in my corner back then starting first class Boyle, I, I actually got to watch him pin on his starting first class rank Sergeant Boyle was he was one of those guys who who you would you would follow anywhere he was he was a solid dude um you know when, when i was getting ready to to leave the you know pcs out to to a different station he took some time off on the weekend and brought his old beat up bronco over and him and his kids and they took me down and and dropped me off to get on the plane or the bus, whatever it was at the time. And But Sergeant Boyle was a good dude, and you would follow him anywhere. Now, I met a handful of, of other NCOs and officers who I would have followed very begrudgingly if they ordered me to because they ordered it. Other than that, I wouldn't have followed them anywhere by choice. They just weren't good people. And it's, it's so hard to find good people who know how to lead, who actually care about people. It sounds like that's where you've really come to. Yeah, I, 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 I care about it in a subtle way. I don't, you know, go on and gush over anybody, but I'll take anybody's problem and really focus in and spend time on it and try to solve it in one way or the other. And that, that's been, the, you know, all the way through. My kids are the same way. And my kids bring their friends. I mean, my daughter, like I've seen everybody in her class at the business school at least once. She brings them in and I try to help them out because that's and that gives me a kick. Thank you. When you change, you can, you know, those people's lives, you can really change and help. It really is, it's a, it's a, a real heart pounder when you, you get somebody, all of a sudden you see the lights go on in their head, you know, and wow, you know, they, they do a, an aha, and you say, wow, that, you, you've done something. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, you, you've really, you've really learned to, to look at problems and find solutions, and that has been part of your, uh, part of your, moment in life that matters so that's where you change the world and that's one thing i just want to recognize here is we, every one of us is leaving a legacy in this world I don't, I don't care who you are i don't care what your backstory is i don't care what your future is we're all going to leave a legacy um the thing is is that a lot of a lot of people do not choose that legacy it just it happens whether it's a legacy of of drug addiction alcohol addiction anger problems, you know, hate, rage, racism, whatever. Or if, if you, you spent your life energy caring about people, helping folks out, you leave a legacy. It's, it's kind of like, like that boat floating across water. He's going to leave a, a wake behind him. Now you get to choose how deep it is and where it goes. And so many people don't. It sounds like you have really just focused in on, on leaving an amazing oh, legacy behind you. I mean, I, and you, you get into something. You don't think about legacy, but you think about doing stuff. 
our 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 golf club here, which I I built only because the the old golf club on Nantucket rejected me. I could have been fought them because I knew everybody in the club. But when I built my own golf club, and it's been the great experience of all times having your own club. I mean, I'm member number one. I mean, nothing's better. Go up to the snack bar and she asks you what your number is. Number one. You know, anyway. But but we changed the club now from a club to an institution with the largest charity on the island now. We supply. We have we have over, some, some, about fifty or seventy five RFPs a year. We we act basically we contribute to almost every charity on the island. We had two academic scholarships for about fifteen years. Now we have two plus seven to ten vocational scholarships. And anything comes up, rebuild the hospital. We donate. Boys and Girls Club, we donate. But that's a legacy. It's a it's a legacy. Actually, there's a book coming out this year, twenty five years of Nantucket Golf Club, and that's a legacy. It's in in many respects, if you look at those legacies in Rochester. Versus the companies that I worked for, EF Hutton, it's gone. And I have a case written on me by Harvard Business School on EF Hutton, what I did there, but it's gone. Lehman Brothers, gone. You know, Furman Cells, gone. You know, there's nothing left of my corporate life at all. And really, your only real big legacy, of course, is your family. You know, that, that, by far, the most important legacy I think I have is my family. Is it? Because that's where you spend, you should, you, spend, you don't spend, that's why I have these four parts of life, this work part takes up more than it should. The family takes up less than it really needs to take up. And, and I, I tell people, in your life, stop as much as you can and spend some time on that family because when it's all said and done, that's all that's left. I'm, I'm 85 years old now. I still have a, I'm still chairman of a small a company up in Boston, but you know, it's not my family's still the most important thing. And it's one where you really leave a legacy, where you create the next generation that, that carries on things that you'd like to carry on or not. <laughs> <laughs> or not, <laughs> you know. I, we have different viewpoints on some things that should be done and should not be done. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the, the truth be told, when laying on your deathbed, that there's very few people who have the boss come in to to spend time with you in that last moment, right? That that's your family yeah. there. They're the no, one. That's it exactly. And you see, that's the, that's a story. I, I you know with the idea that you know. Would I would I rather should I have spent another hour at the office? No, shouldn't have. But we still. But unfortunately, in order to be successful in that work part, that fourth part of life, third part of life, kind of focus on it, and it's, that's why it's a juggling act. It's you know, self, family, you know, communities constantly hit a ball up in the air. You hold it. You know, it really in many respects it is. And so when you find out you're over focused on, on 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 work like I was at Lehman Brothers, the next step you got to go back and focus on your family a little more. And it's basically time. It's calling up and taking your wife to dinner. It's saying, all right, this vacation is going to be a real vacation with kids. That's what we did. And I, I've also, I got some secrets to pass on for vacations and things like, you know, I always take my kids skiing. We did that. But I found a vacation, which is the best for people. I don't care how, you know, you got to be, you got to be some, some means, but have to take a small boat in the Caribbean for a week. What's so great about that? In those days, there was no, no, no phones, no faxes, but what happens at night on a boat? Kids can't get away. They're stuck there at a hotel, <laughs> at a ski resort. They're gone. But at a boat, they're stuck there. And of course, they get to be teenagers and have a half a beer or something like that and start talking. You really build a relationship, you know. So I, I tell people if you can afford it, a little forty foot catamaran in the Caribbean for a week, you'll remember for the rest of your life. Which is really not. We've done. We did twelve of those, and still we're going to do. Actually, in this Christmas, we're taking a little larger boat with eleven. 11, 11 of them, 11, uh, eight grandchildren, three children, three spouses. So there'll be 11 of us. So, but I think that's the, that is the, 
That is the vacation. It's that, that late at night thing where I used to have them read a book too. Things like Who Moved My Cheese or, or The Secret or If, you know, small books. And, and we discuss it and, and they remember that. Now, I am not a water guy. I'm not a beach guy. That's not my thing. So please do not, you know, suggest that to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, yeah, my, my wife was, but now she thinks that's one of the great vacations. It's a, it's a really relaxing, you have no clothes and so forth. You're not a water guy, huh? No, no. I, I, there's a reason I was in the Army and not the Navy. <laughs> no, I was in the Navy. I, 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 but I must say, I, I, I never, that's one of the things I really kind of complain about is, you know, say, have you got any, I don't want any do-overs because if you do a do-over, there's unintended consequence. But I never really learned to ride a bicycle well. I never was a great swimmer. I never understood boating that well. I should, those things I should have just never had time for them. You know, as a child, if you start up, your old man has a boat, you're out on a boat, you know, your old man, you know, teach you how to ride a bicycle. You know, you go, like the pools at orphanage was only three feet, so you couldn't really swim, swim, you know. But, you know, you could have. I mean, I could have allocated my time. I allocated my time to basketball and baseball. So, so I mean, I that's why you, you can't have do-overs. And just people say, well, you do it differently. I don't think I do I wouldn't do anything differently because, God, if I did something differently, you might might not end up the same way, you know, who knows what gotten. But so it turned out pretty damn well so far. Anyway, so far I'd say I, I, I'm now coping with a big one at my age. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're, we're both dealing with some of that age stuff, you know. The yeah, doctor says some things to me age, that age is not for sissies. No, no, it is not. But you know, we the only other option is kind of grim. So, so I'm just gonna yeah, keep that's right. Around. That's my wife always is when I bitch about. And I always say, if I wake up in the morning and I don't, I don't hurt, I'm dead. <laughs> I know that feeling a lot. So well, we're, we're kind of in the same boat there, I, I think. But uh, yeah, it's it's amazing, though, because you come from a kid who's who's been through so much. Your, your life is so full of experiences and, and you don't see it as as excuses to do poorly. You, you use that as the fuel for your fire to move forward. And I Got see it. so Absolutely many right. Got it. so many people who, who, who want to stay in that victim mentality and change you know, change the world from their complaining instead of, you know, changing the world with their actions. Uh, do you have any, any wisdom for the, for the young folks who are, who are out there in that? I mean, cause that's, that's a pretty prevalent mindset. I just, the age and job, not just today's, I'm not here to complain about millennials. Um, but you know, that age, a well, lot of well, they, they should realize when they all of a sudden become a victim. Okay. Now what does it do? What, what happens when you become a victim? Use energy. Where do you use the energy? Study where you're using energy. Using over now, if you use the energy over here, what's going to happen? You know, are you going to really change that person's opinion, that change that company situation, that organization situation? If you take that energy instead of spending it over here, spend it over here trying to figure out what you should do next with your life. Who are you? You know, what is your family situation? What do you want to do? What, what you know? And I think that's very, very important to just to transfer the energy. And that's why I deal with young people to say the opportunity is unlimited today. It really is that, you know, with, with a keystroke, you can contact the entire world. And there's so many things that have to be done, so many problems that have, have to be solved. See, not, not even if you're not a scientist. I mean, just, just the kind of concept of, of helping old people today. I mean, nurse, that, this vocational education just gets me so excited. These two young ladies want to be nurses. One of them, grandmother and her mother, and now she's going to be a nurse. And she really wants to help people. So when you get into a victim situation, dig down deep, 
Find out, try to find out who you are and what your real interest, what's your passion, and how can you express it? How can you express it? And then then use that energy to find ways to express it. My daughter pivoted in the middle of your life. She was running a fund, making lots of money and so forth. And she said, I'm tired. I don't want to make money for rich people anymore. I really want to deal with ideas. And she took it. She started to she worked with a career counselor. Wasn't it that expensive? And he found a job for her that really she's dealing with ideas all the time. She's now the curator for TED Talks. So she's constantly digging up people with ideas, helping them make a speech and bringing them to, to, to people. And just it's, it's, it's fascinating. For she loves her work. She pivoted at age, I don't know, 35, 40, 40. So, you know, it can be done. And, and I pivoted. I pivoted twice in my life, once away from the, the shiny lights of the big companies on Wall Street to a small company. Now I pivoted again at 72 to take full time and spend it at a university where, you know, I really, I mean, I have so much satisfaction. I, I can't believe it. You know, it really, you, you know, I have a, one of my scholarship students is a five foot young lady who basically is an optical engineering major. She just got her PhD and got married in her spare time, got an MBA from the business school. And she's a concert pianist and a concert violinist. Wow. <laughs> she, says, she's, she says, you know, Stands in front of a bunch of people and say, if it wasn't for Mr. Hager, I wouldn't be here today. Come on. I mean, I don't deserve that much credit, but it's a, nice, it's a wonderful thing. you know. And, and I'm training at East, Northeastern University. I'm training young people to be mentors. They're taking foster kids who are freshmen. The woman up there is fabulous. She's training them that by the time they're seniors, they will mentor freshman foster kids. That isn't just a that's, a, that's a multiplication of experience, basically. And this gal is fabulous. That's her program. And she called me up and she beat me up and I gave her a little bit of money and she's on her way now. So that's, you know, those are the kinds of things you can do at this stage of life. And, and you know, giving back is there's, there's nothing greater than satisfaction. This whole idea of community beyond family and work even just giving back. Thing. You don't have to get back big. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to an old lady on a program a couple of nights ago and she said, I am counseling a young Korean, a Korean Chinese medical student who has no parents. She's a medical student at the local university in, in uh, Rochester, Minnesota. And, you know, this is one person. Terrific satisfaction. I mean, they, they talking back with women, women's in the 80s. And obviously, she can give some advice to a young girl like that. So, yeah, it reminds me conversation we had a, a while back with um it was galen elmore who, who talks that his message was was victim victor and vessel you know the same sort of idea to go from being the victim to being the victor and then the vessel for the next generation and, and it sounds like you you've done a lot of that in your life and not coming from you know the the silver spoon lifestyle that we all assume that you know the people at the top they're they're they got there because obviously they were they were rich and wealthy as kids and given everything right. on a silver spoon and, and they had it all given to them and you know they, it's not like they really had to work for what they had and I think you've worked a little bit in your time and and it's really paid off and it's it's a great example for people to follow as far as how to live your life it's just, it's just an amazing story and that's why I wrote the book and that's why I'm talking to people like you because I want people to realize that anything's possible and some of the things I did you know you know working so important working. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I had all I never stopped working. I, I was a pin setter before they had pin setters, you know, in the back of a bowling alley. That was good money. Terrible job. I was a bag boy. I ran a, worked at a candy store. And I, you know, I, and when I was at college, I mean, the best money you can make possible is the post office in the, in the Christmas time. You know, they, they could pass the word for you after you had eight hours in there. I, they had to they spend another four hours finding me. Now, if I got 12 hours work there, 
And then on New Year's Eve, you know, waiting tables, you made terrific money because nobody else wanted to do it. And I did all kinds of crazy stuff. I worked in the St. Lawrence Sea, hitchhiked up to the St. Lawrence Seaway, volunteered for a job up there, you know. And those are experiences you can't get any other way. So you get into business when, when the old man says, you know, somebody's got to go to Japan. I don't have any, but nobody wanted to go. No business there. Nobody speaks the language. I raised my hand, went over there to Japan. We did some business and had some, I had a lot of fun. We had a wonderful experience. Again, I, I love the, the, the foreign experience. And even then, if you look at my life, when I really wanted to be an international businessman, but I was too early. And what I did basically was the business school. I went to Belgium one summer, worked in Belgian chemical industry, realized it wasn't for me. It was too early. It was all family, you know, small businesses. They didn't, they wouldn't take, they wouldn't take do modern methods. It was all kind of, so that was out. And I went to Central America my second summer. I could be a champion, you know, the people not very smart down there. I take over. I found out that was not a good idea. You had to be members of the family or else you didn't get any place. So I went into the financial business, which turned out to be uh, much better for me. It was great. But if I didn't try those out, I probably would have taken the first job in, a, in, a, in an international company. So I recommend people, you know, try things out. And again, all the crazy jobs I had, like, you know, waiting tables and so forth, what proved to me is I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, I, you know, you keep pushing ahead. And maybe some people like writing on tables. That's fine. If you find that you love that, you know, I, I worked with a guy in a hamburger joint once that, you know, he made my day because he just loved the whole thing. I mean, he just couldn't, he couldn't, couldn't, he didn't want to leave at two o'clock in the morning after the racetrack had cleared out and we all want to go home. He wanted to stay there and clean up and that God bless him, you know, and he became the manager eventually. So, Well, I just want to, you know, say thanks, Ed, for spending your time here talking to the, to our audience and, and spreading out some of that knowledge and wisdom that you gained over the years, because this is what people need to hear that anything is possible. Life doesn't have to be what it was. Jason, been my fun, my pleasure. Okay. Foster care nation. Thank you for listening to Ed's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or over at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys so cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios.